uh, to be with us today. Why don't you welcome Dr. Ike Riker. Thank you, John. I appreciate that, sir. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's good to be with you this morning. As a matter of fact, after flying into Lynchburg yesterday in that windstorm, it's good to be anywhere today. I can promise you that. There's something about flying that is always exciting. I think it starts out when they send you to a place called a terminal to get on something that goes that high. And then, of course, when you get on the airplane, you're always blessed as the flight attendant begins to talk to you, and she begins to tell you this. She begins to give you the instructions, and I always love the part where she says, if there is a sudden drop in pressure in the cabin, the little mask above your head will fall out of the ceiling. Take that mask, pull it to the full extent of the tubing, take the mask, place it over your nose and mouth, and here's my favorite part, and breathe normal. <laughs> you bet. If that little mask falls out, I'm sucking all the oxygen out of that plane, y'all. And yesterday, when we tried to get into Lynchburg, they tried two times and could not get the airplane down. They tried two different times, so they had to divert us down to Greensboro, North Carolina. That's also when the flight attendant began to tell us that in case there was a real problem, that our seat cushion could be used as a flotation device. That's great news. If the plane won't fly, what makes me think the cushion's going to float, right? So yesterday was just one of those days trying to get here. A very, very stormy day. A very difficult day to be up, uh, you know, at 30,000 feet in the air. Well, you know what? Life is a lot like that, too. It really is. There are days when everything goes great. There are days when everything is wonderful. And man, we all thank God for those days. We always love it when everything's right in the slot. You know, when everything is moving the right way, our relationships are working, we're actually getting our work in on time that we're doing here at Liberty, and everything is going smooth. You got the right person to date. Everything is working in your spiritual life. And we all love those times of life. There's no doubt about it. But you know, the majority of your time is not spent in those smooth times being right in the slot. For the majority of us, we're going through difficult times in our life. And if you haven't just gone through a difficult time or you're going through one right now, you're probably on the edge of experiencing one in the near future. So what I want to talk to you about today is how do you not only survive the storms, but how do you thrive in the midst of those storms? And I want to take an opportunity to be able to share my story with you as we go through this time. Because stories have a way of being able to unite our hearts, and they have a way of being able to cross a lot of different boundaries. Recently, a physicist said, the truth is the universe is not held together by atoms. The universe is held together by stories. And so today, I'm going to start out by telling you a story that's in Scripture, and then I'm going to share with you a little bit of my story, and then I think the story that you're going to be writing for your own life. So today is one of those days that if you'll make your notes, if today is one of those days when you'll ask God to just give you really some ears to hear, not just what a speaker has to say, but to really hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to you today, he may be getting you prepared for some days in your life and what you heard today are going to come back to be some of the most important words that you have ever heard in your life. 
So today, if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn with me over to Matthew chapter 7 today. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to go over to a remarkable chapter because all through chapter 7, Jesus is giving comparisons and Jesus is giving contrast. And he gets down to a great contrast, and it's one that's familiar to many of you in this room because it's called many times the parable of the two builders. And he begins in verse number 24, and Jesus is speaking to this group and he's been talking to them about ways that you get into the kingdom and then he begins to talk to them about what is the foundation for your life what really and truly is the foundation for your life verse number 24 he says therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them will be compared to a wise man well, you might want to ask right there, well, Jesus, what does it really mean to be wise? What does it mean to be a really wise man in your eyes? And he gives you the answer there. He says, that man built his house upon the rock. That means you build upon godly principles. That means you build upon the Word of God, being the inerrant, infallible Word of God. And I know you go to a university that teaches you that, and boy, do I thank God for that. And I've had a daughter that's just finished four years here at Liberty, and it was great to see her come home and know more about this book than when she left home. And she knows that this is God's inerrant, infallible Word. I, I you know, I, I turned around and I took care of that issue in the beginning of my Christian experience. Experience. Didn't grow up in a Christian home. When I became a Christian at 22, I was a rock and roll disc jockey and uh, settled the issue. Is this or is this not the Word of God? And I settled in my heart that it was. When it comes to this book, I'm like a woman one time that was riding on a train and she was reading her Bible. And this guy looked over at her and said, uh, do you believe what you're reading in that book? She said, I sure do. He said, do you believe all of it? She said, absolutely. He said, do you mean to tell me you even believe that Jonah got swallowed by a great big fish? She said, absolutely. He said, well, then tell me something, lady. How did Jonah live in the belly of a fish for three days without dying like the Bible says? She said, well, I really don't know. And he got rude. He said, look, you ought to be able to back up what you believe. How did Jonah live in the belly of the fish for three days? And he was so rude, the woman was about to cry. And so she looked at him. She said, well, she said, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. He said, well, what if somebody like Jonah didn't make it into heaven? She said, then you ask him. I just happen to believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that Jesus has given us some rock-solid principles right here. All right, students, that's what he's doing for us. And so he says, so therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them is going to be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Well, okay, Ike, that's great. And let's just say that I build my house on the rock. Let's just say that I do exactly what you're telling me to do. What should I expect if I build my life on the rock? Well, the answer might surprise you, right? here because Jesus said the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and they burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And then Jesus turns around and gives the contrast, and he says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be compared to a foolish man. Well, what does a foolish man do? Well, again, Jesus gives you the answer. He says, that man built his house upon the sand. 
What happens when you're building your house upon the sand? You're building your house upon whatever the prevailing mores of that particular society are doing. You're doing what the book of Judges said when it said, and every man did that which was right in his own sight. And you're searching for your philosophy. You're looking for someone to tell you how to be able to build your life. And it might be Oprah that's telling you how to build your life. And you know what? I like Oprah pretty well because Oprah gains and loses more weight than I do. So I kind of like her in my own special way. Or it might be Dr. Phil that tells you how. And depending on how screwed up your family is, you might even understand the Jerry Springer show. All right? But you're going to get your philosophy from somewhere about life. You're going to build your life on truths that you come to believe. And Jesus said, if you build your house on the rock, the word of God, there are going to be floods that are going to come. There are going to be winds that are going to blow. There's going to be some rain that comes down. And he said, and if you build your house upon the sand, the very same thing is going to happen. Look at the way he says it. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they burst against that house. And you say, well, wait a minute, Ike. I mean, here's the deal. If you build your house on the rock, there's going to be floods, there's going to be rain, and there's going to be wind. And if you build your house on the sand, you mean to tell me there's going to be floods, there's going to be rain, and there's going to be wind? Absolutely. You know why? Because the Bible says in Matthew 5, 47, it rains on the just and the unjust. It rains on the just and the unjust. Now, if you don't understand that, let me tell you about a Peanuts comic strip I saw a few years ago. It had Snoopy, and Snoopy was lying on top of his doghouse, and he was looking up into the sky, and the rain was pouring down. Snoopy wasn't inside the doghouse. He's on top, he's looking up, and the rain is pouring down. And Snoopy quoted Scripture. Snoopy said, it rains on the just and the unjust. And then there was a paw print, which meant that Snoopy was adding a postscript to it. And Snoopy said, and it's raining right in my face. Amen. I mean, it's one thing to rain on the just. It's another thing to rain on the unjust. But what about when it's raining right in your face? And so here's what the world wants to know today. So you mean to tell me then... That whether I am a Christian, and I've built my life on the rock, and I've built my life around godly principles, and I've built my life around making Jesus Christ the Lord of my life, and the Holy Spirit the God of my life, and God the Father directing my life, you mean to tell me that I'm going to go through the same problems in this world that someone who builds their life on whatever the prevailing fancy is of the day, we're going to go through the same things we sure are. He even set them in the same order. And the floods come up, and the rains come down, and the wind blows in. You know what that's a picture of? That is a picture of a life that is under assault. That's a picture of a life that's getting crushed in. And maybe right now today, you know, the floods are coming up on you. Maybe you're having trouble in your finances right now. Maybe it's a real tough time for you, you know, with all the loans that you've taken out to go to school. And maybe you've lost your job or maybe you're on the verge of losing your job. And you're sitting there and you're trying to think, how am I going to balance out all of these bills? How am I going to be able to do this? How am I going to be able to get my education? How am I going to get enough hours in the day to be able to go to school and yet maintain the grades that I want to be able 
to do. And, and maybe it's a sickness that you're battling through in your life right now and going through some type of a chronic illness. Or maybe there's problems back home. Maybe now that you've left home and your mom and dad are beginning to kind of go their separate ways. It happens a lot when kids go off to college. Or maybe it's that your mom is battling cancer and you're going through the guilt of being here at school and yet, you know, your family has such great needs. Let me tell you something. There's all kinds of ways that the rain begins to fall and the floods begin to come up and the winds begin to blow. And have you ever noticed that the old adage is true, that it really begins to pour all of a sudden? It just seems like no area of your life is safe. And maybe it's in the relationship that you have with someone that you care deeply about. And all of a sudden there is a storm that is there. Well, the deal is, is that storms are real. And storms are universal. You can't get smart enough. You can't get rich enough. You can't get educated enough. And listen to me. You can't get spiritual enough that you're not going to go through storms in your life. We will go through those storms. But then every storm is unique. It's universal, but at the same time, it's unique. And you say, well, Ike, what do you mean by that? Well, every storm is unique in that what it does to you is up to you. It's not so much what you go through as what you experience as you go through it and what does it do to your life because it can either make you bitter or it can make you better. It can make you become cold and cynical or you can become compassionate and caring. And no one can make that choice for you. And a lot of times what we do when we've tried to serve God, when we've tried to love God, when we've come to a Christian university, when we come to Convo, when we are trying to do all the things that we're supposed to do, and yet still somehow our life seems to be unraveling in front of us, it is very easy to let bitterness begin to get into your heart. Because you start saying, now God, I can understand why you would do this if a person just didn't love you and they were living like this. And God, I can understand if it was happening to a bad person, but God, here I am, I'm trying to serve you. I mean, here I am, God, I want to be able to go out and to serve. I want to be able to go out and make a difference in my world. And God, I don't understand why some of the things are happening to me in my life that are happening. And it is so easy, the Bible says, for us to allow what Hebrews calls a root of bitterness to spring up in us. A root of bitterness to spring up in us. You know that, that verse says, be careful not to let a root of bitterness spring up in you and thereby many become defiled by it. You know what that is really saying right there? When it says, be careful not to let a root, now I know we got a lot of smart people around here and we've got Dr. Ergen Cantor as the head of our seminary. And I look like what Dr. Ergen Cantor would have looked like if you'd have lived right and loved God properly, all right? Just so you know today. And so you've got Dr. Cantor and all those brilliant people in our seminary. Well, here's what I found out. When it says, don't let a root of bitterness spring up in you, it didn't use the generic term in the original language, root. It used a particular type of root that was mentioned. And that type of root would be ground up into a powder, and it would be put into water, or it would be put into oil and it would be stirred up 
so that it would make a dye, D-Y-E, or a stain. So that literally what the verse is saying is be careful to not let bitterness get a grip in your life because if it does, it's going to color the way that you look at the world and you're going to stain every relationship that you have. If that bitterness is against your parents, let me tell you something. It's going to stain the relationship you, you want to develop with that significant person in your life. When there is bitterness in your life, it never leaves you the same. That's why Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, he made the observation about life and he said this. He said, it really doesn't matter how great the pressure is because all of us are going to undergo pressure in our life. But here's what makes the difference, he said. Doesn't matter how great the pressure is. What matters is where does the pressure lie? Does it push you closer to the heart of God? Or does it push you away from God? The experiences that you and I go through in life every day. Let me give you an illustration that some of you are going to wonder, why in God's name did he give us this illustration? But let me just take it through you. How, how many of you in here have ever heard of a coffee called Kopi Luwak? Any of you in here ever heard of a coffee called Kopi Luwak? Let me tell you, Kopi Luwak, look it up later. K-O-P-I-L-U-W-A-K. Kopi Luwak is the most expensive coffee in the world. Let me tell you about it. It's re really interesting. There's one place in Atlanta where I live where you can buy it, and it's called Martinez. The last time I checked, it cost $289 a pound. Yeah, that's Starbucks latte level right there, isn't it? 289 bucks a pound. Now, how many of you in here like to drink coffee? Let me see the coffee drinkers, okay? We can tell we're not at Brigham Young. Absolutely, got a lot of coffee drinkers right here in the place. And so, Kopi Luwak, why is it so expensive, Ike? Well, it's only grown one place in the world. Grown on the island of Sumatra, off the coast of Indonesia, and they have these coffee bean plantations there, Kopi Luwak coffee bean plantations. Now listen real careful. On that island, I want you to look all this up later. Go Google all of this later, all right? And quit text messaging right now. Just hang with me, all right? Kopi Luwak they have a cat on the island, a cat called a civet cat, C-I-V-I-T. And that civet cat loves Kopi Luwak beans. It especially loves them when they're at their absolute ripest. So here's what happens on the island of Sumatra. That civet cat wanders all over that island and he finds the ripest of the Kopi Luwak beans. And that cat eats those beans. Now stay with me. And they harvest Kopi Luwak, the most expensive coffee in the world, is harvested out of what those cats leave behind on the ground. Now isn't that a blessing to you this morning? Aren't you glad you came to Convo today and got up early? And, and that'll break some of you that two cup a day habit right there. I promise you that. But you say, well, what is the point to your story? Here's the point. Isn't it amazing that the very best comes out of the very worst? Isn't it amazing that the greatest comes out of the least? And can I tell you something? 
the greatest lessons in life that you will ever learn at this stage of your life and going forward are going to be the Kopi Luwak moments of your life. When you feel like life has just left you a pile of stuff, all right? And what you have to do is you have to go to that pile of stuff and say, now God, what are the nuggets? Y'all are getting with me now. Y'all are finally getting this picture right here now. And you say, what are the nuggets in this awful moment? Because let me tell you something. God is a Kopi Luak God. He has rich experiences. He has lessons that he wants you to learn. He has events that he wants you to go through. And over in Matthew chapter 10, verse 27, he makes a very interesting observation. And my daughter Abigail brought it to my attention last year when she was reading Oswald Chambers uh, one day for her devotional. He says to us, the things that I reveal to you in the dark, keep your mouth shut until you finally get into the light. He said, and the things that I whispered in your ear, like this prayer summit you're going to do? The things that I whisper in your ear, one day you will stand on housetops and you will shout it out. In other words, what God does with the storms of your life, and there are going to be dark times that things happen, and you say, God, I do not understand why this storm hit my life. I'm trying to serve you. I have missionaries home right now in my church who would give anything to be back in Ethiopia because that's where they were serving. But the wife got sick and they had to come home. And they've loved that country so much that this little couple, blonde hair, blue-eyed, two children from Wisconsin have adopted three little girls from Ethiopia. And they would give anything to be back out there in that mission field. But you know what? They're in a time of darkness. It's not a time for them to doubt. God and don't walk around saying things let me tell you something you say but Ike I just don't feel God in this situation that's okay God's a fact he's not a feeling and he will stick with you through the storm that you're going through some of you that are here to become pastors and to become missionaries and some of you that are married your marriage is hanging by a thread right now it's hanging by the proverbial thread. You're going through a storm in your marriage. You're going through a storm in your faith. And can I tell you something about when your faith gets troubled? A troubled faith is better than no faith at all. A troubled faith is better than no faith at all. Sometimes we look at situations like the shooting over there on the Virginia Tech campus and we say, God, I'm just so troubled by that. God, I just don't understand. God, I don't understand when bad things happen to good people. A troubled faith is better than no faith at all. I promise you that. I promise you. 
And so here you have the builder. One builds on the rock, same elements, same order. Another one builds on the rocks, same elements, same order. And so a world looks at us and says, well, if being a Christian doesn't build this plexiglass shield around you and keep life from coming at you, then why even be a Christian? Because of the next little part that Jesus said about the house built on the sand. And that house fell, and great was its fall. You see, being a Christian doesn't keep the rain away. Being a Christian doesn't put a plexiglass shield and a floor so the floods can't come up. Being a Christian doesn't put breakers around you so the wind can't get to you. As a matter of fact, Christians who have been through those things are the greatest testimony that God has in the world today. You know why? Because trouble handled rightly honors God. Troubled faith is better than no faith at all. God is a fact He's not a feeling. Trouble handled rightly really does honor God. Can I tell you something about those Kofi Luwak moments in your life? They didn't catch God off guard. I'm not a brilliant theologian. I have a degree in theology from Mercy University, but I'm not a brilliant theologian. And I'm going to share with y'all the deepest theological insight I've ever had. Are y'all ready? This ought to just stun you. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? God has never been standing in heaven and all of a sudden went, huh, I never thought about that. That's my big theological insight. Are you overwhelmed? Nothing ever catches God off guard. Why? Because everything that touches a believer's life has been filtered through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everything. And you say, well, I guess easy for you to say because you probably had it pretty easy in your life. Well, let me just tell you a little bit of my story. Let me tell you just a little bit of my story. See, I was on the rock, and all of a sudden, the rain started descending, the floods started coming, and wind started blowing. I can tell you the exact day that it did. It happened on March the 1st, 1983. My wife, Cindy, and I, had gone to Piedmont Hospital in Atlanta to have our first child. And you got to understand, Cindy and I got married when we were young. How many of you married in here when you were young? Let's see how many married young. We, we were real young. Man, we didn't know whether to go on a honeymoon or go to summer camp. I mean, you know, Six Flags even sounded good or Disney, you know. I mean, we were young. So, you know, we got married, we've been blessed, I became a Christian, uh, you know, quit being a disc jockey, felt the call to go into ministry, started to school at 23 at Mercer University, and uh, had flunked out of college when I was 17 years old. Flunked out, just boom, absolutely gone. But then when I became a Christian, I read a book by a guy named Zig Ziglar, sat down and wrote a goal that I was going to get a college education and went to work to be able to get that college education. But you know, when I started trying to apply to get into colleges, they have these awful things called transcripts. Have you all heard about those? And they follow you like a really bad credit score. They go everywhere you go. And no school would let me in. And Mercer turned me down three different times. 
I went to Mercy University finally just to try to get in, and I thought I'd do it real smooth. And so I show up with the money to be able to pay for tuition on registration day. I walked up, and the little registrar was on duty. He had a name tag. It said, Randy. I walked up, and I said, hey, Randy, I'm here to get registered for classes at Mercer. And I got my money right here. And he said, well, let me go get your transcript. I said, no, nah, Randy, you don't want to do that. I mean, let's just you and I work this out mano on mano, and, and, you know, you just go get it. Now, I was, pretty, I was not a very good student all the way through high school. How many of you in this room graduated like the upper 10% of your class? Let me see your hands, all right? It was people like me that gave you that opportunity, all right? Because somebody's got to be somewhere else. I, I just want you to understand that. And I was pretty much a C and D student. But my dad was the greatest optimist. He used to look at my mother and say, at least we know our boy's not cheating. I mean, you know, not with a report card like this. Nah, that boy ain't cheating. He's, he may be dumb, but he's honest dumb, all right? So... Randy goes back there, and he comes out with my transcript. I'd gone to school called Kennesaw Junior College. I remember this day like the rest of my life. He walks out. He's got this long transcript. The only thing I had that could have possibly transferred, this was in the days with a quarter system, was two hours of P.E. Two hours of P.E. I've had people say, well, Ike, did you try to flunk out of college during a war? No. And then I tried to enroll in the military during the Vietnam War, and they turned me down because I had an eye problem. Hey, y'all, Forrest Gump got in. I couldn't. I mean, this is how bad my life had dropped, right? So now I'm 23 years old. I'm trying to get into college. I'm begging for the opportunity. I go there to Mercer. Randy looks at this thing. Randy looks at me and says these words, there is no way you're going to get into this university. Have you ever done everything you knew to do? And the storms just won't stop. And nobody's giving you a chance. I went to walk out of Mercy University that day, I think the most defeated guy on the face of the earth. I'd gotten a job in a church being the janitor and the youth director. How many, how many people do we have in here that are part-time student pastors and you got more than one job? Let me see your hand. Mine was janitor and youth director. My job description said 80% janitor, 20% youth director. It took me years to figure out philosophically what that meant. Here's what it meant. If those kids went down the toilet, they would be clean toilets, all right? 80% janitor, 20% youth director. That was the job I had. And now, now I, I mean, what am I going to do? I'm walking out of the building. As I'm walking out of the building, I start down. I want you to listen get the picture. I'm walking down a flight of steps. And there's uh, glass doors, a bank of glass doors. I'm going down that set of steps, kind of like over here at DeMoss. And there's a set of steps coming up from the basement. And an older lady is walking up those steps. And for a brief moment, we turn and we look at each other. And she looks at me. And she could have looked past me. But she did what they teach you as a 7th grade patrol person. Any of you in here... Were you a seventh grade patrol person to help people through intersections? You, you, okay, you remember what our motto was? Stop, look, and listen. The other day somebody yelled out, stop, drop, and roll. That's if you're on fire, okay? Doesn't help you in an intersection. I mean, it'll get people's attention, you know, as you roll across the road. But she stopped, she looked at me, and then she said to me, 
Are you okay? Normally I would have said, oh, I'm fine, I'm cool, I'd have gone out those doors. But that day I was so discouraged. And she looked at me and asked me that question. I said, no, I'm not. She said, can I ask you why? I said, because I want to go to school here, but they won't let me. She said, can I ask you who they are? I said, well, we'll start with Randy. He had on a name badge. I think other people are involved, but Randy was definitely at the center of this thing. She got a laugh. She said, come upstairs with me. Would you come upstairs with me? I said, yes. We sat down. She folded her hands like this. She looked at me. She asked me to do something I've asked thousands of people to do since. She said, son, tell me your story. I said, ma'am, I don't have a story. She said, son, everybody has a story. She said, why are you here? And I started telling the story. My mom and dad both had a fifth grade education. My dad worked in rock quarries all of his life. No one in my family had ever been to college. And I was wanting to go. She finished listening to me. She said, can you walk down the hall with me? And we walked down the hall. We walked into the administrative offices and she walked up to the door that was marked Dean. And I thought, hot dog, she knows the Dean. When she opened up the door without knocking, walked and sat down in the chair behind the desk, I thought, well, we have hit the mother load. And I had, out of all the people I could have met at Mercy University, I met Dr. Jean Hendricks. And she looked at me and she said, Ike, you're sincere, aren't you? And I said, yes, ma'am, I am. She said, then I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to sponsor you in the school, and I'm going to bring you in on probation. I said, what does probation mean? She said, that'd be like you made bad grades for a couple of quarters. We'd put you on probation. And I said, well, Dr. Henderson, with all due respect, I think I can get on probation on my own. Why don't you give me a little bit longer of a runway here, and, you know, let me kind of work my way over there to probation. She said, no, she said, if you mean it, you'll do it. I ended up going to Mercy University. I want you to listen real closely. This is not to brag on me. This is to brag on God. This is a student that never could get it done. Here's the difference Jesus Christ made in my life. I graduated from that four-year college in two years and one quarter because I went year-round. Versions of like J-term, May-terms, and uh, December semester like you guys do here. I ended up graduating in two years and one quarter, and I graduated magna cum laude. I graduated with a 2.68 or 3.68 grade average. I would have settled for laude have mercy, okay? Uh, you know, that, that would have been fine. And I went on and did my master's and went on and did my doctorate, and I'm fortunate enough to have had Dr. Falwell, my hero in ministry, to present to me during a graduation an honorary doctorate uh, as well from Luther uh, from this school and I have a uh, honorary doctorate from Luther Rice Seminary as well I've been extremely blessed folks extremely blessed but I face my storms I face my storms and I told you that I married that girl named Cindy and everything had gone right for me everything had gone right I became the pastor of a little country church had a terrific pastor that was the lead pastor there by the name of Dr. Richard Lee. When he left, miraculously, they asked me to become the interim pastor. I was so rookie, I didn't even know what an interim pastor was. I asked the chairman of the search team, I said, well, what does it mean to be the interim pastor? He said, that means you'll preach till we get somebody we really want to hear. Uh, oh, cool. And so I, I became the interim pastor at New Hope Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia. Ended up spending the next 18 years of my life there. It became the second fastest growing Southern Baptist Church in America. We were very blessed. But when my wife and I had been married for nearly 10 years, we had never been able to have children. And all of a sudden, we found out we were going to be blessed with a child. And we went to Piedmont Hospital Atlanta on uh, that day in March, March 1st, 1983, to have that child. And uh, that morning, everything had gone fine. Everything was perfect. At about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, an anesthesiologist had given my wife an epidural. And uh, the, she, as he walked out, a little nurse walked in and checked her. She said, we ought to have our baby in about two hours. 
And as she walked out, my wife said, boy, I feel better for the first time together today. And I said, well, let's pray together. And we prayed together. And when we got through praying, I kissed her seven times. She said, go out and tell everybody I'm doing great out in the hall. I went out and down to the waiting room and I told them. I came back and I walked in. I said, hey, everything's great. Everything's wonderful. We ought to have our baby in about two hours. And as I was walking back down the hall to Cindy's room, all of a sudden I heard this disembodied voice say these words, Ward 100 to labor and delivery. Ward 100 to labor and delivery. And I don't know how to tell you this. And I know I'm right at the end of my time here. But all of a sudden I knew that my wife had died. I knew that she had died. I ran to that room and there was a nurse running out. As that nurse was running out, she was saying, oh my God, get somebody here quick. And I ran into that room and my wife was in the middle then of cardiac arrest brought on by something extraordinarily rare called an amniotic embolism. And if you are pregnant or have a friend that's pregnant or a daughter that's pregnant, please understand this happens in one and one and one half million births. But it had just happened to us. All of a sudden that room was a sea of white coats and crash cars. There were people grabbing me saying, you got to leave, you got to leave. And I kept saying, no, you don't understand. That's my wife, that's my wife, that's my wife. You don't understand, that's my wife. I understood within moments why they wanted me out of that room. As all of these doctors rushed in, they tried to save her life. There was one doctor in particular that must have asked a question because suddenly he turns around, and I can remember watching his fingers, Johnny, just fold down, and he pointed right at me, and I was about right where you're sitting, and he pointed at me and said, son, do we save your wife? Or do we save this baby? And I thought, my God, maybe I've read it wrong. Maybe, maybe she survived this. And I said, oh, God, save her. But at the end of about 45 minutes, all of those doctors had stopped. Except one. This one doctor was literally straddling her body on that bed. And he was taking his fist and he was pounding down into her heart and pounding down into her heart. Finally, I said, sir, would you please stop beating on and he said, yes, sir, I will. And that day, my wife and my child died at Piedmont Hospital in Atlanta. And I was in a storm, y'all. She was the person who had witnessed me. She is the person who held my hand on the right while a guy named John Yarbrough, a student pastor on the left, held my hands and with hair all down on my shoulders and a rock and roll disc jockey, I accepted Christ into my life. Now she was dead. Instead of going to home with a newborn, I was going home by myself. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew. There were days I didn't want to live. I never thought about taking my life, but there were days I didn't want to live. And I thought I'm never going to laugh again, and I'm never going to love again. But you know, God had other plans. And I met a young woman whose fiancé was killed in an accident three months before they were to get married. They had dated for nearly seven years altogether from the time they were killed. And we fell in love because we both had been through mutual heartache. And when we were on our honeymoon, I said, I don't want to wait to have children. She said, why? I said, we're going to have a little girl. She's going to have black hair. She's going to have blue eyes. And she's going to be born on a Sunday. She said, what would make you say that? And I said, because on the darkest day of my life, that's what God told me. What I tell you in the dark, 
what I whisper in your ear? There'll be a day that you shout it from the rooftop. My wife looked at me and said, well, whatever you do when we get back to our church, do not tell our people God said that to you. So that Sunday I stood up and I said, hey, by the way, we're going to have a little girl. She's going to have black hair. She's going to have blue eyes. She's going to be born on Sunday. You can write it in your Bible. And people did. Ten months, 28 days from the day we got married. Thank you, Jesus. Ten months and 28 days from the day that we got married. We went to the hospital there in Atlanta. And I took my wife up in the little wheelchair. And there was a nurse on duty. She had on her name tag. It said Lily Farr. And I rolled up and I said, ma'am, you need to get her in the back. It was about midnight on a Saturday night. I said, she's going to have this baby at about 3.30 in the morning. Lily Farr had on a pair of those little half-librarian glasses. She looked over at me and said, oh, are we a doctor? I thought, this is going to be tough. I said, no, ma'am, but God's been waking me up every morning at 3.30 in the morning to pray for this child. I know she's going to be born about 3.30 in the morning. My wife looked at her and said, ma'am, he honestly thinks he talks to God. She said, would you just get me in the back and give me some drugs, okay? <laughs> this is called transition. And so down the hall they go. And a little while, Lily comes back out. She goes, oh, honey, they told me who you are, and they told me everything you've been through. She said, sugar, we're going to take good care of your wife. You just sit out here. And this is what she said, with your little friends. Like I had leprechauns with me or something or another. Guys, y'all sit there. You sit, quit eating those lucky charms. You're getting them all over the sofa. Yeah, I, your little friends, and, and everything's going to be just fine. And then she goes to walk off, and then she stops and does one of those Columbo double takes. She turns around and goes, oh, and by the way, maybe God said this baby's going to be born at about 3.30 in the afternoon because we're just getting started. And I said, fine. 3.36 a.m. And, hey, in case you're from Alabama, that's morning. Okay, 3.36, just playing. 3.36 a.m. My little girl was born. Did she have black hair? Yes, she did then. She had blue eyes? Absolutely. And it might interest you to know that that little nurse named Lily Farr, I led her to Christ, and she became a member of my church. And, uh, yeah, isn't that pretty cool? And uh, if I even call Lily today and tell her Jesus will be back tonight at 10, she'll be packed in her front yard looking up, man. I mean, just, that guy knows God. Oh, how I wish I could tell you all of my story. Because I told our church when I met my wife, I'd met my Abigail. Because that was David's second wife. And that's what we named that little girl. My daughter Abigail's sitting right over there. Abigail, how about standing up? She graduated from here in May, and man, I'm so proud of her and so delighted she had this school to come to. And, uh, and I close with this. I've got to tell this, and I know I'm a couple of minutes over, but I've got to tell this. We adopted a little girl named Danielle who was seven years old from here in Virginia. Danielle's mother had um, seven kids. None of them had the same birth father. Same mom, seven kids, different dads. Her mother was in an accident, went into an irreversible coma. And we found out about Danielle and knew immediately we were supposed to adopt her. And so we started those adoption proceedings. And the lawyer in our church, we've been told Danielle had learning disabilities, all kinds of stuff. Lawyer in our church came to me and he said, I, I heard you're going to adopt this little girl. I said, yep. He said, then I'm going to do it for you, meaning for free. Now, when God gets a hold of the heart of lawyers, y'all, Lord's returns, just, just right at it. We're just right at it. 
And I said, no, Jack, I want you to do the adoption, but I'm going to pay you. He said, no, you're not. And I said, yes, I am. And then he said something to me. Now, I want you to listen to this really careful. I'm through. He said, I don't cheat me out of a blessing. Let me do her adoption. Three years ago, she married his son. How could he have dreamed? when he said, don't cheat me out of a blessing, that that little seven-year-old skinny child was going to grow up to become his daughter-in-law. And now on May 25th, he and I are going to become grandfathers. You see, God has a way, y'all. And it's so easy to get fixed on the storm. Well, I close by giving you a quote. Charles Haddon Spurgeon's quote helped me through some dark days, and here's what he said. God is too good to be unkind. God is too wise to be mistaken. And when you can't trace his hand, you can always trust his heart. And when God gives you Kopi Luak, you start searching because he has treasures from the dark for your life. God bless you. Thanks for letting me be with you this morning.